Hello and welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Robin Houghton. And I'm Peter Kenny. So welcome to our season two finale. <gasps> How exciting. It's terrifying, isn't it, that we've managed to do this two seasons without even realising it. Yeah, well, we're going to be doing a lot of backslapping and, and self-congratulations later in the episode, aren't we, when we when we get let loose. In the open air. At a Sussex beauty spot. And we've got an excellent guest for this episode, Fiona Sampson, talking about her brilliant book, Come Down. Mm, yeah, one of her many, many books, a, a prolific writer and um, a, a, well, an amazing, an amazing CV, awe-inspiring. Well, after that massive build-up, perhaps we should hear what Fiona actually had to say to Robin. <laughs> yeah, let's... Fiona Sampson, MBE, is a leading British poet and writer. She's written 29 books and has been published in 38 languages. Her national honours include the Newdigate Prize, a Chumley Award, various awards from the Arts Councils of England and of Wales, Society of Authors and the Poetry Book Society, plus numerous Book of the Year selections and several shortlistings for the T.S. Eliot and Forward Prizes. Fiona has been awarded numerous international prizes and her most recent book of poetry, Come Down, published by Corsair, was an FT Book of the Year and Wales Poetry Book of the Year 2021. A biographer, critic, librettist and literary translator, from 2005 to 2012, Fiona edited Poetry Review. She's a trustee of the Royal Literary Fund and Emeritus Professor of Poetry, University of Roehampton. Her book, Starlight Wood, Walking Back to the Romantics, from Little Brown, will be published in September 2022. Fiona Sampson, welcome to Planet Poetry. Thank you, Robin. It's a pleasure to be on your planet. <laughs> we are totally honoured, Peter and I. So, so thank you. And the main thing we're going to be talking about today is your book, Come Down. What I tend to ask poets when they come on is first of all just to read a poem from the book just to get us in the the mood of it and then we can talk a bit more so would you like to start with a poem yes come down um has two title poems a short one and a long one and don't worry i'm going to read the short one <laughs> um, which sort of sets the scene perhaps i'll tell you the way it sets the scene which is that it's a book about belonging and trying to belong and not belonging it's a book about tracing my family finally at this advanced stage in my life mm -hmm. and they're Australian so it's an Australia of the mind because I've never been to Australia but it's also a book that I wrote about moving to a valley in Herefordshire which was a very sort of old settlement um, at an old house and that sense of trying to put roots down there in a place where you know you, you are Johnny come lately or Joanna come lately and um all those centuries of predecessors aren't related to you, as indeed hmm. it's no one in my life. So, <laughs> um, and the great irony is, that, of course, we've just moved away from that house. So, ah. this book is very strange for me now. So, come down. Where a bridge narrows the fast moving river, two movements, contrary and conjoined, when water rushes against stone that hands itself like a passing shadow over the bright river surface, racing away from the shock of self. Come and see stone moon down like memory through water, cold enough to drown you. Two movements crossing over cannot pass, but they do, while sky steps continually out of the river. That's lovely. I love the way that really invites us in. And we're already hearing some of the features of this Herefordshire landscape, aren't we? The, the topography and the river. And so these are sort of echoes that come again and again through the book. One thing I noticed that I was going to say there is no punctuation. That's not entirely true, though, is it? You do use occasional um, M dashes or question marks but you kind of eschew the the you know any kind of commas and, and full stops I, personally I love that I'm a bit like that myself but hearing you read the poem is very interesting to hear where you put the emphases because we don't 
one can read this in many ways. Yes, I think it's good that you can. I mean, I, I can only read it one way at once and I kind of wish I couldn't. I wish I could read it in all the ways that just words allow themselves to be. I mean, I always think about lineation as, you know, like a musical score. It's a record of the sound of the poem. But, of course, one of the joys about lineation is the way um, grammar and meaning push against that. Yeah. So it's like kind of flexing that push and pull, you know, which we reduce by calling enjambment, but it's kind of much more than that, isn't it? Um, I've gradually shed punctuation. So two books ago, I really had shed everything except end ashes, uh-huh. which I found much more capacious. Um, they seem like a, a gesture or an arrow pointing forward or a, a kind of offering, a hand offering, maybe like one of those finger posts pointing forwards. Um, yeah. More than, you know, uh, like colons and semicolons, it seemed like fences and gates. And then my last book, In the Catch, there was a little bit of punctuation and certainly every poem ended on a full stop. I love the possibilities are inherent in the form of, I shouldn't say, I should say, each poem being a single sentence that makes perfectly grammatical sense, doesn't cheat, but um, pulls so many things sort of into one breath. They're all one breath poems in a way. Obviously, I can't read them in all one breath because I don't have a lot of puff. But And I like that sense of flow and connectedness. I like it in the world and I quite like it in poetry too. I'm a big fan of W.S. Merwin and luckily Merwin liked my poetry too. And Mer- but Merwin in the in the 70s did away with punctuation and he said that he thought the punctuation stapled a poem to the page. And I think that's true. Um, I want to say something else about the poems, which is that they have regular numbers of stresses per line. So that that's a kind of secret... Uh. But it's they're not formal feet, so they're not necessarily all iams, but they are regular numbers of feet, stresses per line, so that there's that kind of it's a bit like slab, it's a kind of secret form which kind of gives them strength, I think. Gosh. All through the book. All through the book. Wow. Sometimes it's two stresses, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four, mm. sometimes it's alternating four, three, four, three. But you know while we're talking about form as such I was intrigued by looking at the book as a whole. There is a certain amount of symmetry, and particularly you've got these two poems, Noumenon and Phenomenon, which I don't know much about philosophy, but I, you know, I looked them up. And uh, but, but the one is eight poems in, the other one is eight poems from the end. And I sort of think, oh, that's a nice sort of balance. And I wondered if it, I'm sure it was all deliberate. But do you rather like the fact that there are these things to discover in terms of the, the, the ordering of, of the work? Yes, I do. I mean, I don't know about you, but I when I get a poetry collection, I don't tend to read it in order. I tend to just dive into it. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of a very greedy, fast reader of poetry collections. And then probably eventually I'll read it in order. But I think that the order is there subliminally and it's there as a secret symmetry. And I also do think that the running order is, in fact, very important and is kind of performative if you start on page one and you go through. And yes, I do. I mean, it's part of that same thing about you know, only connect, everything being connected. I love the idea that, um, I mean, it's obviously it's lovely if, the things to, if people think there are things to discover, but I also really love that sense of there's a kind of chime across, I mean, it's like having a rhyme that's very non-local. It's not, you know, it's, it's sort of eight lines away or something. I like yeah. that sense. And in the past when I've um, had collections which have had sequences, for example, Coles Hill had... Um, a sonnet sequence of 14 sonnets because 14 is a sonnet number. And, you know, I thought, oh, this would be a panel in the book somewhere. But actually, then I realized, no, it works wonderfully to spread them out through the book like beads, you know, beads on a string. But also they speak to each other across the book and they unify the book. Really believe in books as complete works, not so thematically, but poetically. And uh-huh. I, you know, I, when I sort of work with people and mentor them, I'm often saying, no, no, don't just put them in the order in which you wrote them. <laughs> don't send them to the publisher in the order in which you wrote them. You know, think about it. So they sing to each other and, you know, they have a relationship. Uh, so, yeah. The title, you've mentioned you know, there are two poems called Come Down, and, of course, that is the name of the whole collection. And you alluded very briefly to the fact that you have no relatives. So this book is about your is it about your biological father and your stepfather is that is that right tell us a bit about about that yes it's about tap roots it's about literally coming down into a valley 
it's I, for me it has a ghost of you know that um let's go down to the river to pray you know that it's not a spiritual it's but it's an old you know america yeah that sense of coming down to into this special space but also kind of like landing like a plane not that i like flying but i mean obviously there is a second sense uh, or ninth sense which is it's a bit of a come down yeah but and i think that is a I mean, language isn't innocent and it's not sort of clean, is it? I, I do have problems with titles, uh, with book titles especially. I found the catch very hard to title for a long time. It was called Vault. And I thought of vaulting over. I thought of uh, high ceilings. Everybody else thought of kind of dungeons uh, <laughs> and bag vaults <laughs> and things locked and dark. It's kind of completely opposite. And I couldn't find another word for that kind of springing off, that kind of, because that was a book about, you know, joy. Or rather, it wasn't a book about joy. It was a book full of joy. Yes. So then I went for the catch because there's a sense of trophy, catching something, which is somehow, by definition, in the air. You can't really catch something that's rolled along the ground towards you. So, yes, Come Down is about, you know, putting down roots. And the two times in it are about my two fathers, yeah. The one I knew and the one I didn't know. So you've put them at um, either end of the book. Yeah, not at either end, actually. And I actually didn't mean there to be one each. It just came out that way. Hmm. I don't really know why. And the one from our doctor father is noticeably elegiac, and he wasn't dead when I wrote it. Interesting. He was in his 90s. So I kind of, there was a sense of looking forwards to looking back and so on. And there is this feeling of movement. I mean, come down, it is a, it's a, a command, if you like, and it's it's a a movie, as you say, coming down into the valley, come down into your life, um, into your ancestors. And we get this movement, sense of movement and transformation that comes again and again in various poems. There are, there are a couple that, um, riff off of Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. And I know you've written a biography of Mary, Mary Shelley, haven't you? So you're mm-hmm. no doubt deep into that. Um, I'll ask you about that in a moment. But first of all, there's another poem I wondered if you could read, which, at this point, which is Wharf. I liked this very much. It felt it felt like um, we've, we're introduced to these beasts that are apparently walking on water. This is this. I got the feeling from some of the poems that there are references to scripture and psalmody and liturgical language, and this is one of the poems that I feel has that kind of feeling to it. I don't know if you agree, but. Thank you very much, Robin. That's a really nice thing to say because, yeah, that's definitely a really big influence for me. I mean, four four books ago, I wrote a book called Common Prayer and, yeah, that iconography. And also, I just love the miraculous in the sort of given world. So, <laughs> And it is also this really happened. I mean, there is a place, I was going to say near us, near where we used to live, on the River Wye, where um, in, in summer, the river becomes so low that there's shingle just below the surface of the water. So when the cattle go in to, to, to drink, it looks as though they're standing on the water. You see the whole of them reflected under, <laughs> you know, and a reflected sky. And it is beautiful and miraculous. Uh-uh. Wolf. When cattle stand on water, not afloat, but pausing to graze dark, shining water, they stand gazing as if this was nothing out of the ordinary, having come down an old slipway to graze world turned upside down by water, where they alone wait and will wait. Centuries of beast insight come with them to make a meal on the shiny rim of darkness, where clay Huggers heaved earth from itself, offering it up naked and ready for the mould, the pattern, the kiln, and the drying rack. That's a wonderful line. Centuries of beast insight come with them. It immediately made me smile. And this, and also this idea of the clay. And then later on, you said about having rhymes or things that that figure through the book and we have a, another poem later on don't we called earthenware a sort of a play on keats uh yes. greek urn and um so this kind of prefigures that in some way i i'm very resistant to the notion that countryside is purely decorative and <laughs> you know even the river Y in that bit is you know post-industrial and i just really think that 
that grit, that kind of grain of reality is incredibly, it's incredibly important in our relationship with our environment that we don't kind of prettify and remove the countryside from ourselves. We understand it's a living, changing, mutable set of conditions which we act on and which act on us. And if we understand that, we're more likely to be better custodians of it. And, you know, on big and small scale. Um, and I love that. I love all the ordinariness of miracle, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a, a beautiful snapshot. I did mention Frankenstein. So you have these two poems. But then later on, we've got uh, Mother as Eurydice. And I kind of, for me, I kind of paired them in my mind. I, I don't know, maybe that was, that's just me. But Frankenstein's golem, this character you say in the poem, lifted from death and forced to pass again through his own dying. And then we've got the mother as Eurydice, who this mother disappears into nowhere. You know, who who was she? I don't know. I sort of felt that there was something between those two. They were talking to each other. I don't know if that's if you've got any comment on that. Well, I think I think you're right. I mean, having said I'm I didn't actually quite say it, but I am quite resistant to thematic collections. Nevertheless, I think that most collections have a kind of thematic weight because they are what you're preoccupied by in the two or three years during which you're writing the poems that become the collection. And two or three years during which, of course, you also write poems which not only fail, not only write poems that fail, but you also write poems which you don't include in a collection because they just don't belong. So I think, yes, I think, that's true, and I I think there is a you know there is a there is a speaking across this kind of the shadow the valley of the shadow of death because that's another valley you know it's another river valley right never is also the sticks you know yes and I also I guess did feel a little bit guilted I've written about two fathers and not a mother and um, you know I'm enough of a feminist to notice there are a lot of guys in this book <laughs> and of course I've written about two poems here about. Frankenstein and his creature and not about Mary Shelley although of course the reason I wrote those poems is because I was writing about Mary Shelley um so I was thinking about her but in a sense I think with my biographical head so differently from my poetic head that I couldn't I couldn't just restate what I'd found or felt or thought about when I was working on Mary um in poetry that just didn't happen for me but I continued because it was the bicentenary of Frankenstein yeah. Also, because, you know, that's what happens when you, with a prose book, is very different from poetry. A prose book has a life and, you know, you go around places and you do events and, and people, you know, so I ended up talking a lot about Frankenstein and thinking thinking deeply about it, thinking further and further beyond the Mary Shelley book and finding it this most enormously capacious myth and really interesting. And, of course, then also, like a dog with a bone, dragging it back to my dark cave and kind of making it be about my preoccupations so the modern Prometheus poem is, you know, is a kind of mirror poem and you can read it down the two lines, yes. read it across, obviously, because in a sense, I'm sort of saying they're Jekyll and Hyde, aren't they? Um, not Jekyll and Hyde, but they're, you know. That's sort of idea, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's sort of idea. No, I thought that was very clever and intriguing. I spent a lot of time wondering about that. Well, and also, it, its origin is actually technical. In fact, both the Frankenstein poems were commission poems and they were both commission oh. poems that came to me because of the Mary Shelley book. So Frankenstein's Girl was a commission for... Bristol City of Ideas Festival um, in the bicentenary year. And then Modern Prometheus was an artist was doing an installation at the, the at the Jewish Museum in London. And she'd done an installation all about Frankenstein. You would think they'd be quite removed topically, but there we are. Anyway, she'd come across my work and she said, would I write something for each vitrine? And I thought, well, I'll write each something for each vitrine. And there were lots and lots and lots of them. So I thought, well, I'll put a line each of the poem. And then I found I was trying to write these lines that would read as self-contained little phrases, but would also speak to each other. And that uh -huh. was what gave me the technical idea for the mirror poem. And in the end, I was actually writing it on a train in Serbia. Um, so for me, whenever I read it, there's a kind of faint sense of the, the banner outside the window and the kind of the flat, the flatlands and the cornfields outside the window. Now, I, I know that you trained as a violinist, didn't you? That was your first metier. Yeah. yeah. And um, and I was I loved your music lessons essays. I've come out as essays from Blood Axe. They were lectures, were they originally? They were. 
um, Newcastle University used to have the Newcastle lectures and they had various poets give, it's a set of three lectures and and then a poetry reading. Um, oh, someone had already done translation and I thought, what am I going to do? And then I thought, well, it's obvious. I'd like to think about uh, poetry and musical form. And then, in fact, I expanded the uh, Newcastle Lectures into a book called uh, Lyric Cousins, which is a, it's published by an academic publisher, which is a shame because I think of it as kind of, you know, obviously it's, it's references are scholarly, but I, I thought of it as original thinking and I would like mm. it a bit more to kind of, Poets thinking about music and musicians thinking about poetry and words because I am acutely aware that there are two tribes and they really don't understand each other very well. Well, yes, I think um, essentially it's, of course, uh, an academic book. It will be very expensive and it won't be available in regular libraries and things. So it's a shame it won't it won't get that wider. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, the lectures, the, the Blood X book, I mean, they are quite scholarly, I have to admit. I mean, I, I, my husband's a professional musician. I said, oh, you'd be interested in this. But he, he didn't get very far. He was just like, oh, that's a bit over my, over my head. But, but that's fine because, you know. <laughs> well, one of the things I'm really aware of is that as a musician, other aspects of your education fall away. I mean, particularly if you're an instrumentalist. I mean, you, you spend all those hours a day, all through adolescence, practicing. And, you know, you do probably the minimum of, GCSEs and A levels, even if you're bright at school, you you know because it just isn't the time and that isn't your focus. And you know, I'm always astonished that classical musicians, but then I'm not astonished because I know because I went through the system. They don't read, they don't they don't talk. Particularly, they don't talk. I think that's something that's very noticeable for me in the shift from being being a musician, being a music, yeah. being a writer, which is a very talky world. So that's an amazing shift that you made. I mean, you get from being a professional violinist to, mm. oh, I'm going to do an MA and PP at Oxford and, you know, become an academic virtually. I mean, that's, quite, mm. that's a huge leap. You must have, I mean, what did that take? You must have been, were you very confident or you were just very determined, very ambitious? Or, you know, what what made you say, I'm going to do it, it's going to happen? I was idealistic and innocent. I had no idea how difficult it would be. <laughs> I just had no idea. I mean, I... I mean, had I known, I'd never have had the courage to do it. And, you know, I gave up the violin before. I didn't go to Oxford until I was 25. So I had a couple of years, two, three years, really working as a writer, doing community projects and so on before that. I I got residencies working in health and social care because when I was a musician, when I was a fiddle player, I was very interested in Council for Music and Hospitals and Live Music Now and all that stuff. I used to be really involved in that and... I am really, really, again, the notion the arts are entertainment for middle classes. I don't think they are. I think they're the lifeblood of everybody and people just don't have access to them. And people should have access to them just as they should have access to everything else. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, that definitely was my experience in health and social care. You know, a field I worked in for like 12 years that people with absolutely no sense of themselves as having any relationship to reading or books or anything or poetry just really get it when it's the real stuff, by which I don't mean my stuff. I mean bringing in, you know, poems. Yeah, extraordinary. And people writing. And just it's just nonsense you need to fob people off with kind of easy read crap. I mean, people just, they don't get it. They're not into it. After I'd done it for a couple of years, I realised I couldn't articulate. Well, I just felt that this is really close to what art is for, and I realised I couldn't articulate it because I didn't have any really an education beyond GCSE because um, I did two A-levels, but, I mean, I did them in a year and I did them early and I taught myself one of them. So, I mean, like, nobody taught me anything there. And so it was in order to be able to articulate that that I went to university. Um, Of course, it didn't help me articulate it, but... (laughs) (laughs) You were probably already very articulate and uh, you were just kind of, yeah. Well, it's amazing anyway. It's an amazing trajectory and, you know, very inspiring. I was going to ask you to read... At last arrive. And I think what I particularly, what struck me about this, again, it's another example of how you're using repeating certain words in different places. And to, to use the music analogy, it reminded me of a kind of a, a fugue, you know, mm. different voices coming in with the same theme in different places. And I, I started to sort of underline the words that repeated and, and then those words alone made their own little mini poem. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll work that up after Fiona Sampson. <laughs> yeah, I'm a great believer that rhyme, that the repetition is a kind of full rhyme, you know, and there's a kind of beautiful 
unmuffled chime that you get, a real ringing sound. So, At last the rye. Here we are, walking in moonlight through fields of rye. We pass through their pale sea in the summer night. Three of us walking between the bent heads, the feathered napes of holy rye. Where we pass, the field opens. The moon silvers the path ahead of us. Three of us walking. One will carry on and carry on. Long after two have called their dogs home, one will walk a straight path through the silver fields that do not end. Lovely. And again, with no full stop at the end, it makes it even more, you know, do not end. And then, as you say, we then go into your long poem at the end. When I read this, and I didn't really know, the, I hadn't really got in my head the theme of the book, but it sounded like three people. It could have been a couple and a, a, a two grandparents and a child. The child lives on, the parents are gone or something like that. But I guess this is to do with ancestors. and. Actually, it's not. Ah. Um, it is to do with a couple, me, my husband and me. And it's to do with one of my oldest friends who has never, ever sort of coupled up and who we were walking near his home. Actually, we were literally walking near his home in Kent. And just that sense that, you know, we 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 could peel off and call our dogs and off and, uh, you know, back with us and go home. But in a sense, there he is in that long, lonely life path. But also, I mean, I love walking through fields. I love, I've got a thing about paths cut through corn. I've written poems about that before. I've got a thing about fields at night, fields, you know, in the half light, in moonlight. It is what it is. So it can be read anywhere. And I'm, I really like the way you read it too. So hmm. now I want to just touch on when we've had poets on before who have been or are editors of magazines, Usually they are known as editors first and then we say, read us some of your poems, but you know, Helen Ivory, you know, she says, Oh, people think of me as an editor, but I'm really a poet. It's the other way around with you. But I know that you did edit the poetry review for yeah. many years, didn't you? Seven years, yeah. And yet you're still I would say you're better known as a poet than that stint at poetry review. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but I feel it's not. I mean, like all editors, I feel it's not. I feel that, you know, even when I was at Poetry Review, I can remember I mean, it's enormously petty, but I can remember, you know, the, you know, the Elliot shortlist readings and everybody else, including people who were wonderful editors like Robin Robertson or Don Patterson, would get introduced with a load of stuff about their poetry. And, and I get introduced as, and she's done such a great job of editing Poetry Review. And I think, can you not just read the poems? This is my turn. Oh. I spent my working life trying to enable open doors, being enthusiastic about everybody else's poetry. Could you just not, I can't. You know, I've got nobody doing it for me. Could you not just read my poems? Yeah, so that's poor. I mean, I I loved editing. I'm going to still do bits of it, but I loved, I absolutely adored it. Were you able to write at the same time, though? I mean, or did it take up all your time? You know, I mean, you're working with the work of, you know, the best people in the country. You're working with the work of, like, everybody in the country because everybody sends to Poetry Review from people send their first poem to people, you know, but tell whoever the laureate. But tell me, be honest, did you actually read all the all the submissions? You I did. did. Well done. Absolutely. And I have nothing but contempt for most poetry editors who don't. <laughs> they just don't. And they have, you know, in trays which are the friends pile and so on. I absolutely don't do that. I probably should have done. I probably should have been, you know, horribly nepotistic because that does seem to be how the poetry oh, world dear, works. Yeah. But I wasn't. I was very because I have always come out of the slush pile myself, always. I'm great believer in the slush pile and a great believer in it's absolutely arrogant and ridiculous to think that you know everybody who's in the field any one time you don't know the people who are emerging whether they're young or whether they're not young you don't know them because they are yeah. emerging that's the definition of emerging they they're not yet you know known to you they may be known to somebody but not necessarily to you and so that sense that you know you don't have to pay attention you don't need to does seem a bit lazy and, and a bit of, and a great shame really a great shame i mean it's also the case that when you're experienced at doing it, you can tell very quickly the 80% that isn't good enough for the magazine of mm. record. And you can tell usually very quickly the stuff you're desperate to have in because it's amazing. You know, the reader's going to, it's just going to be so, it's going to blow their minds. The difficult stuff, the stuff 
that you put aside and you return to and return to and return to, the stuff that you read very slowly and many times and agonize and hold it up. And so people get very frustrated with you. Is the stuff you can't quite make your mind mm. up about. The stuff that there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I think I've been on the I've been on the receiving end of that. Mm. But at the same time, I have always encouraged people to multiply submit. I think that's the other side of the Well, that is that is interesting, yeah. And then be, you know, be honest and honorable when the first place accepts it, then you withdraw it from everywhere else. Because you can always say it's a mistake and really editors are kind of relieved <laughs> because they think, Oh well, you know, I don't have to say no. And yet and yet some editors are, are very forthright about, about not simultaneous submissions on their websites. I also think that it's wrong. I think it's wrong of them and selfish of them, and they probably aren't acting poets. And if they are, they ought to, mm. they ought to you know, channel their poetic experience. Interesting. I felt very, very strongly, particularly at Poetry Review, because it's a magazine that people actually read, as opposed to a lot of poetry magazines, which frankly are magazines for being in hmm. um i felt that it's responsibilities faced it both ways it's responsibilities faced to the poets who wrote for it i mean not only poems but reviewing and everything and it's and it's responsibilities faced towards the reader and you have to balance both of those you have to make something that's amazing for the reader so that they love poetry and they keep coming back for poetry not just to your magazine but to poetry in general Tickets poetry review and the poetry, you know, it's like that one thing that people often have, you know, they're linked with poetry, particularly actually people who don't write poetry, but like their English teachers in school or something. And they, it's their one thing. So if you can aspire and keep engaging them. Hmm. And then on the other hand, for poets, if you make it a really good magazine and not just a crony magazine or a magazine for let's have a whole load of people just because they've never been in before, but you know, you find the really best people you've never been in before, which, of course, I did constantly, um, then it's more of an accolade to be in it. Could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> Would you like to read a final poem from the collection? Your choice, really. I'd quite like to read Boat Lane. Please do. And um, What's strange about this poem for me now is that, um, you know, my dad has died since I wrote the book, and um, the book that I've just been correcting in proof has in its way become a kind of set of elegies for him. It's because it's a book about walk. It's called Starlight Wood, walking back to the romantic countryside. And it talks a lot about, you know, trips when I was a child. And therefore he kind of walks in on the page quite a lot there too. So it's a kind of triangulates this poem. Great. And it's got an epigraph from John Davidson, I heard the South sing o'er the land to Knolls where Norman churches stand. Boat Lane. Down a lane where bulrushes, taller than me, thrum. Beetles with antler claws, too heavy for them, stumble at my feet once again. And for the first time, I'm following my father through a salt stink of fields the sea can't forgive for belonging to it. Before Marsh rose up, soft, soft as shaking reeds in sunlight. And someone built a chalet among the oaks down along Boat Lane. I see the steep shingle roof between trees where my grandparents live, time without end. They watch me, following the lane that leads towards them and away, under pale oak trees whose branches make a cage filled with lights and with the old cries of doves. And where at night owls flutter like rags trapped above the tide line, calling me out of sleep. Wild child, wild child, making shadows leap the walls of the steep angled attic among salt sweet night smells, while out across soughing grass the sea murmurs loss, and I float from the open night window, a scrappy moth among the stars that see themselves reflected and afloat in infinite water, each one a coracle adrift in its own pool, but not like Moses. No, I'm no lost child between the giant yellow crests and irises cramming the waterways with gaudy. As my father walks ahead into the glare 
a violet streak in the yellow afternoon and vanishes while water pools below a white railing, always now and here where the pillbox entrance gapes across the ditch, releasing its toad stink of piss and fear. Remember round the next bend, you can see the monument, and I do, with the window wound right down and a wide open smell of France blowing in the car. My father, man of Kent, is following the lane he's known since he was a child on Romney before the war. And afternoon is always green and gold between the reeds where waders run like ghosts of birds. As deep beneath roots and silt, the boys who had to ditch say their own names, mouthing silently, the ones he could not save on missions over the North Sea. But still the waves lie and lie, the sea always unsatisfied, breathing up dikes and across low fields. It condemns the shabby pubs and bungalows, while shadows pool along boat lane where my own ghosts walk on water, grandma in flowered housecoat, grandpa carrying his camera. Here they come down the lane where bulrushes taller than me thrum, beetles with antler claws too heavy for them stumble at my feet once again. And for the first time, I'm following my father who belongs to Marshwater, and to the sea. It's beautiful and it's just got this walking pace all the way through. We're walking with you down this lane. Actually, at one point I was thinking of um, Dungeness, you know, with the, the shabby bungalows. and It is Romney Marsh. I mean, it is, you know, Boat Lane is actually Bonnington in Romney Marsh. But um... So I just want to say thank you, Fiona, so much for coming on. It's been really fascinating and um, we're so... Uh, lots to discuss here and uh, give me lots to think about. So thank you. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for asking such interesting questions too. <laughs> Not automatic at all, is it? So it's lovely. Poet with, you know, rooted in music. I, I always find that really interesting. And actually, listening to her read her poems, there was that sense of each word felt like a a note that was supposed to be listened to. There was something kind of interesting about the way, you know, her cadence as she read. Yeah, and that idea she she seemed to be quite open to the people reading her poetry in different ways. You know, like this absence of uh, punctuation and so on. Yes, that was refreshing, wasn't it? Yeah, so that seems quite a musical approach to me. Yes, indeed, and the idea of uh, sort of almost a syllabics. After she'd said that all the poems are written in this way with a certain number of Two or syllables three stresses. per, yeah. per line, yes, I sort of went through and I was, I was trying to see it and I still struggled with some of the poems. I was like, oh, I can't see it here. But that's part of what she was saying, wasn't it, that you you find these things or you don't. So I did like that idea that there was a mm. lot to be discovered. Yeah. When she was talking about books as complete works, you know, not thematically but poetically, that idea of not particularly liking themed collections or, you know, they weren't particularly for her, which I yes, thought. Yes, Because a yes. lot of the, the work we've looked at over the past couple of years has been that those books have been quite strongly themed. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very common, isn't it? And certainly things that get pushed up for prizes quite often are on a theme from what she was saying there seems to be a kind of hidden structure in the work of you know book ending with poems about each of her two fathers and you pointed out the Newmanon and phenomenon poems yeah yeah and there's a tremendous amount of structure and, yeah. and i mean it is themed but it's not that every poem is about one of the two fathers it's, it's more subtly mm. themed than that i think yeah this interested me when Fiona said she had trouble with titles because I, oh, yeah. I certainly do. Sometimes I feel I've thought of a great title 
and then there's no poem to go with it. And then sometimes <laughs> I'm quite happy with the poem, but I thought, can I find her title? So I was fascinated by how she struggled with her previous collection, The Catch. And, and the, this one, Come come Down, has got so many different connotations to it. But mm. are titles something that you struggle with, Peter, or are you a title man? No, I usually get uh, titles quite quickly, whether they're mm. good or not, is for other people to say. <laughs> but I, there's a... But sometimes I have the title long before I've written something. But I've had the title of a short story since I was in my 20s. Oh, really? The Man Who Juggled With Lemons. Oh, you've, you've um, given it away now. It's out there. Someone else is going to have yeah, it. Yeah, no. I, after after 40 years of trying to write The Man Who Juggled With Lemons, I've, I've given up. But that's, still... that's pretty determined. Like, I'm going to write this damn story. <laughs> anyway. I'm interested by those people that do actually have the titles first and then kind of create a poem to to, to answer it. But I'm very reassured that uh, Fiona is kind of uncertain yeah. about what to call things. It's like we were talking about the prelude uh, last episode and how that had lots of different names as it was going on. And also the T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland. Oh, yeah. what was it? He-, he does the police different voices. <laughs> Why is that so funny? It just, I don't know. It's got this sort of Monty Python-esque feel to it, hasn't it? <laughs> At the risk of repeating myself, I really like what she said about repetitions being a kind of full rhyme. You know, I think mm. we often try and instinctively steer clear of repetitions just because oh, you use the same word twice. But Yeah, well, sometimes there's that thing, isn't there, of you've, you've used a word twice without realising yeah. it. But, see, but if it's a deliberate thing, that's fine. But if it looks accidental, then then that's when it's an issue, yeah. isn't it? I mean, Yeats used to repeat things without any shred of appearing to worry about it. And there was that, that idea of being spell-like, you know, just kind of murmuring the same thing. Yes, um, incantation yeah. type thing. Uh, so yeah. I, I quite, you know, she seemed to have quite a open approach to the kind of internal structure. Yes, and also she was talking as as well about repeating certain things through the book, mm. wasn't she? So so within not just within a poem, but through the book. And I remember that particularly when we interviewed Inwar Elms about his book, The yeah. Actual, that uh, he had a nice kind of chain effect where a word would appear that you had just read a couple of poems ago, quite subtle because it would only be like one yeah. word sometimes and not a theme or anything but when if you read the if you read the book sequentially then those things do pop out in a in a sort of pleasing manner i did like the the poems that she was reading um at last the rye that was a beautiful poem mm. and that boat lane it's got that kind of romantic exploring of landscape that was also populated by memories of her generations of you know her grandparents and her father and these people walking into memory and and the the sea she says the sea is always unsatisfied or the sea always unsatisfied yeah. and that sense of the sea wanting to wash away those memories in a way some kind of elemental push and pull and i like that my father belongs to the marsh water and the sea so it's like he's almost leaching away now or being drawn back, back into, into eternity. Yes, yeah, so in back a way. into the ground, coming down, back into nature. And yes, very beautiful. That was a, a beautifully structured piece, wasn't it? And there was a kind of circularity about mm. it. I, I really want to read this collection. You know, it's her themes about fathers and, and so on are things that resonate with me. I had a complicated relationship with fathers. And this thing about belonging and trying to belong and not belonging reflects the modern condition so much, doesn't it? We all want to somehow belong. And- there were so many universal themes here, I, I felt. They weren't so specific to her experience that that I wasn't able to relate to them. It felt very, yeah. um, you know, s- s- sometimes a, a book can be such a personal work that it's quite hard for the reader to kind of get into it mm. and be alongside the, the poet but I did feel that she that's absolutely how she works with these personal yet universal themes. So, Yeah. I mean, in that poem, The Wharf, the, the one she read first, there was a sort of stone, and she was comparing the stone underwater to a moon, and there was something beautifully organic about that. It was capacious enough for you to step in, you know, whoever you are. We did touch on the fact that Fiona was the editor of Poetry Review for seven years and we've had poets on here before who are editors and mm. I felt that she's better known as a poet but she said that she still 
gets referred to as uh, or thought of as an editor. She was quite frustrated with yeah. that. <laughs> Understandably, that's right. yeah. her, her, her example was the T.S. Eliot readings. Yeah, the T.S. Eliot. I could feel her pain there. But I thought it was interesting, some of the things that she said, that she said she did read every every poem that was sent. Are you surpri- Are you really surprised at that? Though? I am, Do you yeah. Think? yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm oh. sorry, I was cynical, but I think oh. when you've got thousands of things coming in all the time, I'm I'm surprised there there aren't a couple of readers, yeah. you know, trusted sifters. Yeah, but she kind of alluded to some magazine editors having you know friends piles and that sort of thing. <laughs> something yeah. comes in from a named poet and you put that in. Oh, put that in a mm, that's in a probables pile, you know. Whereas Mister A N other. Mazar, who the hell's Peter Kevin <laughs> Howard? Chuck them in that pile over there, like, geez. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I quite liked her forthrightness about how to be an editor and the fact that she thought simultaneous submissions were absolutely fine. And yeah, she's definitely on the side of the poet in that, I think, because it is really frustrating to have your poems kind of on ice for half a year while somebody decides yeah well that that is fair but you know the Mm. editors have their own view as well which is we need time to consider and think and she did say didn't she when she was editing she still did take a while to decide about you know there are certain poems that were definite yeses others definite no's but there's the one sort of borderline it does take a long time to decide if there's room for them in that issue uh, you know, thematically and all the rest of it, uh, or is it not quite good enough? All those sorts of things. I, I, I understand that takes time. I mean, you edited a magazine for a while, so you must have been on the receiving end of that to a certain extent. Yeah, I didn't, I, because I turned things around, especially with the easy and so quickly, it wasn't really an issue. Hmm. Um, and that's because I didn't have, a, you know, the sort of industrial levels of uh, submissions that modern ed- editors have to put up with. Well, it's a minefield, but God bless them for doing it. Anyway. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, I thought Fiona was uh, a great interviewee and uh, had lots lots of interesting stuff to say. Uh, I loved her honesty and, and I love her work. I, I just thought I, I came away quite inspired. Yeah, I can, I can see why. I think she was a great interviewee. And a fitting interviewee for our final episode of season two. <laughs> So, Peter, where on earth are we? We appear to be on the top of Beachy Head. The sea is all before us, the sun sparkling on the sea. Distant Brighton, Seaford Head and the Rampian Wind Farm. We're on top of the world, aren't we? Because there's sea, a 180-degree view of the sea. So we thought we'd come to a hostelry to celebrate... Yeah, the Why end not? of season two, our season two finale. It's amazing, isn't it, Peter? It started as a kind of COVID fever dream, really, didn't it? When we were all locked down the first time. It did. It's like, let's have a podcast. And uh, and then it's still going, which is really weird. After <laughs> This is our second year, isn't it? Yeah, this is the end of our second year. So we're doing a bit of backslapping and a bit of... Uh, We've had a drink, haven't we? Just one one and a third only pint of Only one lager. and a bit. Yeah, only one and a bit. That's right, yeah. But we thought we would have a look back on some of our favourite moments of season two. Yeah, there's been all kinds of things running through it. One of them has been my sort of worrying about how do you write a green poem? And I think actually sort of looking back on all the stuff we've done, that uh, Janet Sutherland had the answer. Oh, yeah. When we were talking to her and uh, maybe we should just hear what she said. Yeah, let's hear that again. I think that as animals, because we're, you know, we like to think we're sort of above everything, don't we? We're, we're people, we're human. But actually, we do have this deep connection with the physical world. And, and I think that's often forgotten. Um, mm. and so one of the things that we can do is to remember that deep connection. And I suppose that's, part of what I'm trying to do is try to remember it. You know, when in the spring you have, um, or, or I have, a, a sort of physical urge to plant things. I have to plant seeds every spring. I've got, uh, I've got an allotment, but it's like, it's like a physical imperative. You know, mm. I've got to put seeds in. And I think we need to 
to listen to that, to remember that the health of the earth is very, very important. I think we all need to have our hands in earth, really, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yes. I love what Janet has to say about you know putting your hands in the earth and been doing a bit of that myself recently in the garden, you know, trying to get it ready for for a garden party. Not quite the same as <laughs> not quite the same as going down the allotment. And although we do grow courgettes and beans in our garden in a, on a small scale. Yeah. <laughs> no, there is something about putting your hands in the earth that's really grounding. Yeah. But I mean, you know, as a person that was brought up on a farm, she's kind of been doing that most of her life i expect or at least have had the knowledge of having done that as a child yeah yeah very much so but i like the way she you know that whole green poetry it wasn't like you know i'm a green poet she's just a kind of poet that's grounded in yeah the real world that's the natural world that's what inspires her that that's what gets her writing and and it's uh, that's something we've talked about with lots of poets isn't it what what gets them writing what gets them over any kind of a block what inspires them to to sort of lift their game and and I remember Kim Adonizio in the oh, yeah. in the season opener she had a lot of really good insights into that and she talked about um, reading other people's works being a, a key factor I think reading is so often the trigger for something to happen you know I look for those writers too that sort of trigger me and wake me up to language and get my writing going in some way because I spend a lot of time like every writer beating my head against the wall and going nowhere and writing a lot of garbage and feeling like I can't write and you know all those things that we all feel and reading is really the answer for me to read someone whose language inspires me and wakes me up to some possibility or some idea or some uh, so that's pretty important to me. Like Dennis Johnson is a writer who's, you know, wonderful prose writer who, if I'm writing prose, I will read his sentences and they, and mine will become mysteriously just some fraction of a percentage better just by reading him and taking that in. Um, but he's also a wonderful poet. So he's one of the writers. Um, lately, Diane Seuss, uh, is another one, American writer, um, Terrence Hayes. Uh, you know, I, it's changed throughout my writing life, who I read and who triggers me and what that triggers in my writing. And I'm always trying to look for new new writers to inspire me and new ways to write. So, yeah, so we've been obviously reading lots of different things for the podcast. But what I've really loved is that I've begun to read things that I wouldn't have encountered before, like um, Ashanti Anderson who um, we kind of discovered at the beginning of this season. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Well, I think she approached us, and um, we really liked her work, didn't we? Yeah. Well, I, I really liked the fact that she she defined herself very precisely, didn't she? And mm. she explained why that was important. Yeah, she used kind of... We were talking about those intersectional labels, and actually she made me completely reappraise why that's really useful. Yeah, let's hear that. Yeah. Particularly as a black American who has no documentation of my family or my origins beyond maybe three generations. I'm also putting it out there as sort of building my own legacy, so to speak. Like I... Mm -hmm notice you know in the introduction and I introduced myself that way as well as a black queer disabled poet and that's because I want people to be able to find me generations down the line I want for other black folks or other queer folks or other disabled folks or other black queer disabled folks to be able to say like oh look at Ashanti like this was a person who was doing this in 2021 We're currently under siege by a load of flying ants. I can see about 20 of them all just creeping on our little bench. I feel them all over my shoulders and my neck. Ugh, it's horrible. It's everything that's bad about ants plus wings. Ugh. So we're we're carrying on regardless because we're professionals (laughs) or something. (laughs) Anyway, what were we talking about? Poetry, probably. (laughs) Perhaps they're poetry-loving ants. (laughs) I loved that. I loved that that segment we just played from 
Ashanti. She was such a good interviewee. Yeah, she's great. I really um, hope that she does well. You know, she's... Uh, I thought she... Up and coming. Yeah, and just interesting kind of use of imagery, really strong and unusual. Yeah, yeah. Now, one theme that has cropped up several times over the season has been translation, poetry in translation. Yeah. And I was really pleased to interview Sasha Dugdale. Of course, I asked her the question about translation and writing and and, uh, did she feel that it affected her own writing? Could she do both at the same time? And so this is what she had to say about that. I often get asked about the relationship between poetry, writing it and translating it. And the truth is, I'm not quite sure. Hmm. They're very different in some ways because it's somebody else's voice. So you're trying to find a shape for it in English. So it's possible that you exercise the right poetic muscles. And often the poetry that you translate is so very different from work that might be, for example, contemporary in Britain that it, it's at such an oblique angle. I think that probably is good because it, it forces you to look outside the sort of quite narrow confines of a national poetic culture and think about uh-huh. poetry more broadly. And then perhaps just words that you're forced to use because you're translating that you might not have in your natural poetic vocabulary, yes. they, they start to figure in your, your poetic thinking. So... Um- Another person we met through the translation business was Ali Reza Abiz, who was, he'd edited a book of um, new translated poetry last year, and his own book came out this year. Just fascinating to hear the idea of somebody writing in the context of censorship and the fact that, you know, this happened to him as a young boy. That was powerful stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. So I experienced this censorship as a reader of literature since a very young age. So one day I come to school and I see that some of the books that I used to borrow from the library are not on the shelves anymore. And uh, there is one very particular instance that uh, really shaped my, actually haunted my teenage years, is when I was reading a novel and there were only a few pages left before I could finish the novel. And it was in the break time. And the school clerk came and looked at the cover, asked me to see the book. And he just threw it in half. And he said, you can't be reading this book because it's a communist book. When you spoke to Di Slaney, she took us back to that kind of made us think about that first flush of enthusiasm, that falling in love with poetry that you get. That's right. We, we interviewed her with Sharon Black, didn't we? That was yeah. a sort of a oh, two-hander. A, one of those technical two-handers that you've been doing. Yeah, that was good fun. They were both really fascinating to mm. speak to. The nicest time of being a poet was when I didn't know very much, you know, when I didn't know about the industry, when I didn't know who was who, didn't know what I needed to do to be recognised or known. Those were blissful days, you know, when you're starting out and it's all new and sparkly. So then you kind of feel the burden of the machine, of the industry, of the, you know, the, your peers pressing on you. And, and that is quite a weight, I think, you know, the pressure to produce stuff and to have books. It takes you away from what drew you to writing poetry in the first place, certainly what drew me to writing poetry in the first place, which is the joy of the craft. I can really relate to that, can't you, Peter? I, I think it's absolutely true what Di said. Sometimes I find my, my ambitions are, you know, just just blinding me to the reason I'm writing in the first place, which yeah. is ridiculous. I, th- I always have this phrase in my head that the gods laugh at the ambitions of poets. <laughs> it's it's quite Buddhist though that thought that being attached to outcomes. You know, if you do something you you love and do it to the best of your ability, you know, just doing it without thinking, I'm writing this thing so that it can be published in place X yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. But then, if you want to get ahead in the poetry world, I suppose you have to think like that. But I, I can never quite do that. Yeah, tricky, isn't it? As somebody I read something recently in an interview with someone who was saying. It, you just have to keep writing and you have to write a lot and you have to keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. And I don't always feel like writing. I'm mm. a bit of a lightweight, I think, sometimes. There's something about silence, though, isn't there, about actually giving in to periods of fallowness. Gosh, yes. To, to actually replenish 
replenish yourself and, and actually not be pushing yourself all the time because I found that occasionally I, I've given myself a, a brief like I have done recently and started writing you know poems around a particular subject uh, and it's all coming from my conscious mind and I'm making poems that you know while they fit the brief aren't possibly that felt you know mm. um they're fixing a hole in a pattern rather than actually coming from my deepest self somehow. Mm, yeah, yeah, good and point. That, and that's why Fiona was, what she was saying about those collections that are not built around a theme, I really heard that, the idea that that because you're writing over a couple of years that those things actually organically belong together because of the place they occupied in your time of life. Yes, yes. I, no, I agree. A lot of the poets we've come, we've talked about have, have done that and very successfully. Yeah. And now here we are in this beautiful spot. We've actually moved from our previous spot where we were being attacked by flying ants. And now we've got a fantastic view of the sea. There's, a, there's people in the background having supper. There's a, a tractor. And it's so idyllic here. We're very lucky, aren't we, to live in this part of the world? Yeah. On the brink of... Look, there's the sea there. The whole outside world, the whole planet of poetry is just over the horizon. It's just over the horizon, that's right. And we're going to take a lovely summer break. We'll be back in know, September or October. One of those, yeah. One of the, one of the three. We'll be full of enthusiasm and sparkling new guests. We will. And we hope you have a lovely summer. And please come and listen to us again in the autumn. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.